Father in heaven, we want to be a part of the blessing, the promise in that text, which is Rahab was with your people all the days of her life. We don't want to be part of that curse, Lord. Where all around us it seems like there is an attempt to rebuild cities of evil and darkness. We want to uphold your promises and your promise is that you will come soon and deliver us. Guide us to see that this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. There I was in a missions class in Barron Springs, Michigan, back in 2006, been a few years ago. And I remember from that class being taught anointings and watch, watching out for the culture that you're entering in, all kinds of hodgepodge of ideas from that class. But I remember really the experts in that class were, it was not the teacher or the teachers they brought in to teach different subjects in that class. It was really the African pastors. They were the experts in that class, especially when we got down to the part where the teacher was talking about demonic activity, demonic harassment, demonic possession, uh, and deliverance, and how to really to be free from that. These African pastors just seemed to have it all down pat. And they even, they even taught us in class and for me, outside of class, one of my mentors, the steps that people would take to be in bondage to Satan. And you might be surprised what it began with. They tell me it usually began with some form of cherished sin. And that cherished sin was harbored. And then it could be something simple. They said like appetite, or he put down a whole list of things with me, or this or that. They listed a whole bunch of things, and they said, it's not those particular things, it's just the act of cherishing them. And then the next thing starts happening where their spiritual eye or their ears are opened, and eventually it gets to the point where fear prevails their home and their lives. And they'll even get to the point where they will do things to sacrifice their firstborn son, which you find in Joshua, that eventually does happen to somebody in the Bible. So these African pastors were really chiming in during this class, and the teacher was welcoming it because... Really, here in the, in the first world, if you will, or the, in the 21st century America, we, we typically diagnose the guy like I met on the street as somehow mentally disabled, but we don't diagnose the spiritual need oftentimes. And so we had a combination of the professor and the students teaching us this class. And I remember at a certain point in the class, a fellow student came along and said, we have an issue. Um, their pastor really can't explain it to them. And we've been invited, two seminary students, fellow pastors and I, along with a musician, to come to their home and to deal with the demons that are harassing them. And what they meant by demon harassment was not simply you heard the door closing and nobody was there, or you found someone footsteps in your attic type thing. It was this girl was in her bed at night and these demons would literally pick her up and shove her face and her whole body up to the ceiling and then drop her down on her bed. I mean, that's, that's beyond just footsteps and doors closing. And they would choke them and throw them and I just was, it sounded really right out of the Bible. And so I felt a little bit intimidated because that was, I dealt with it on the street a couple of times and and other times like that, but I had never really gone into a home being asked to help deliver these people from the demonic forces. And so maybe you would do something different, but I said, you know what, I need to fast for a little while and pray because 
I know that's, that's meant for the hard cases, but for me, I've never been involved with this, and I feel like I need the Lord to guide me in this situation. And so there we were, along by this creek side. This, there's a field here, a cornfield here, and this trail goes down by a pathfinder bowl over here. But over to the left is this, this little meandering creek. And it's not the most picturesque creek compared to what you guys have around here, but there was this creek. And we remember us kneeling down as students saying, Lord, we need you to really, really be present in our hearts and our lives to do something about this. We cannot deliver anybody except for by your power. Now, the question we had as we were kneeling down was, Lord, can you please use us? We don't feel worthy, but please, could you use us today? Now, I'll come back to that story at the end and tell you how it worked out. But as you think of that question, can the Lord use me or you to deliver those around us? You have an obvious answer from the Word of God, don't you? That there we were looking at Joshua and how there was the muddy flowing Jordan River and how it stood back in heaps and they walked across on dry ground. And as they got across there, there were people in that city who really wanted to be delivered, weren't there not? Rahab and her family and her household. Think of somebody, and in the Greek it's very clear, she is a prostitute in the, in the, in the original language. And she wants to be free from that. She wants her family to be free from all of that. And not just that lifestyle, but the whole city, the whole culture of Canaan at the time. Do we have people today who want to be free from what's going on around them? Maybe generational things have come down to them and have them in bondage. I believe the Lord can make a way and He can use us. And this story shows us that because as the Israelites went across on dry ground, the people inside Jericho watched in amazement. And part of Jericho, like we've said before, was perched up upon a hill. So you can imagine being in the city, seeing the Jordan River just go upstream for a mile or so, miles, and some translations make it seem like, some commentators say it's miles upstream. It just rolls up, and then it just goes downstream, flow all the water, dry ground, and this whole huge nation comes across. And you can see this nation from the city coming across. And you know, especially if you're not Rahab and her family, that they're coming to conquer you. So there was fear in the city, and there was amazement at watching this take place, and yet there was hope in the city from Rahab as Israel was there on the plains humbling themselves through circumcision, humbling themselves through the Passover service, humbling themselves and saying, Lord, would you use us to conquer and deliver this city? We know the Lord Himself in His presence appeared to Joshua as a soldier. Joshua takes off his shoe, recognizing that this belongs to God and that he worships God alone. And God's the only one that can give him victory. And so Joshua humbles himself as well. And now we find in the text, it's time for deliverance. The Israelites have healed from the circumcision. They have healed from their past because the past has been literally rolled away at Gilgal. They have conquered where their family before them in the wilderness failed. And now they're ready to deliver the city. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. You can follow along in your Bible if you want. This is the modern King James. Jericho was completely shut up because of the sons of Israel. None went out, none came in. And Jehovah, or Yahweh, said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand and its king and the mighty men of war. So here's a city that as we look at archaeological records, we find has the defenses capable 
of withstanding a siege, has the mighty men of valor who are capable of, even if they do get in, they can fend off the enemy warriors. And yet, we find, in essence, they're frozen with fear. They've watched in amazement. The kings are in fear. The soldiers, their hearts are melting away, Joshua says. And here they are shutting up the city. Rightly so. They've gathered people from the countryside. The farmers and everything have gone into the city. And now they've shut up themselves in the city. And Joshua receives words from Yahweh, words of promise. And we see, once again, here in this text, Joshua is being spoken to by God. Look, Joshua, I've given Jericho into your hand. Even its mighty men of valor will not be able to stand against you. You will conquer this city and deliver Rahab and her family. As I read that, I said to myself, in the midst of a battle, isn't it important for us, each one of us, to be on speaking terms with God? I mean, we shouldn't even be going into a situation unless the Lord has bid us to go into that situation. And once He has, we should be on enough talking terms with Him that we will listen as we go along the way and follow His specific direction. And that's exactly what Joshua is doing. Every step of this journey, from Joshua 1 down to Joshua 6 here, we find he is coming before the Lord. He is seeking the Lord. He, he doesn't feel strong and courageous. And the Lord tells him four times, but he's strong and courageous. And so he has to keep having that reassurance from God. You're my child. I've called you. I have a mission for you. Joshua, look up and see Jericho. No one is going to stand against you. And so God provides them a way, and now we find the strategy. This is an unusual strategy in ancient Near Eastern warfare. What army sends their priests and their, thing, their articles of value right up to the city wall and has maybe some men in front, some in back as a rear guard, and you walk around the city? Do they not know that millstones can come down on their heads? I mean, there's all kinds of ancient warfare methods that tell you, you just don't do this. You say, well, it's an act of intimidation. Maybe they used that in ancient warfare. Not usually walking around the city over and over again like this. This is an unusual strategy. And as you read it, it even gets more unusual as you go along. Their only method of attack is going to be their voices. Let me say that again. Their only method of attack in this battle ends up being their voices. And we find their swords come into play as the city walls fall. But that's their method of taking down a, a wall there's no siege ramps. There's no catapults. There's none of that. It's their voices. So as you look at this strategy of deliverance and you think, man, it looks, you know the story, right? You're familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. Look, this is the story, right? It's an unusual method to deliver a city into your hands. And here it says, you shall go around the city, all the men of war. I mean, remember Uriah? They put him out in the front lines and then they backed off. And where was he at? right by the city wall. What happened to him? We know he died along with other men of valor right there fighting at the city gates. So this is not the best strategy. So go around the city, all your men of war, sitting ducks, go around the city once and do that for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And the seventh day you shall go around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall be when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up each man straight before him. 
I mean, that's an unusual besiegement. It's usual that you break a hole through the wall and you funnel through. But this is saying, no, you're going to shout and all the walls are going to fall flat and each man's going to walk right in in front of him. Now, Joshua knows the Lord and knows that he's capable and trusts that this is going to take place. And in the previous verses, we know that the Lord himself has appeared, has appeared to Joshua. And so we find... God's going to use this unusual strategy. You ever thought, um, let's just take this for instance, isn't this an unusual strategy? Uh, have you ever thought, I mean, for marketing terms and all of that, sending out a flyer like this, you've got like a 1% chance of somebody coming to your building with something like this? Isn't it an unusual strategy to, to have someone speaking to the people and, and somehow that's going to change their lives and that's going to make drug dealers not deal drugs anymore and that's going to, that's going to help people who were just totally down and out depressed. Somehow they're going to change. Isn't that an unusual strategy? It almost seems unusual, doesn't it? Paul says the foolishness of preaching. I almost sometimes think to myself, Lord, what is it about the preaching? In the week in and week out, the Bible studies, the classes, what, it is about, what is it about your strategy of sharing your word with people that changes their hearts? It's got to be that faith, isn't it? It's not the words. I mean, think about it. You're inviting people to come to your building. And some people say that's a fortress mentality. You need to go and knock down the walls. That's true. But think about it. Where did Rahab end up? She ended up in the fellowship of believers. There's, there's something to this method. It's not perfect, but we are inviting people to hear words from God, and that's going to break down their spiritual strongholds. Do you, do you believe that? I believe that. And I know that's what's happening because otherwise we wouldn't have the issues that the devil throws upon us before, during, and after something like this. And so, yes, we still even have unusual delivery methods today. But God is going to use them. And in this case, he's going to use those methods to deliver Rahab, her family, and not only deliver them, that family, but God doesn't just have in mind Jericho. He has in mind the land of Canaan. There are others out there that will become part of Israel after this conquest. And so God doesn't have in mind just the immediate strategy. Their goal, though, is to obey. Joshua had commanded the people, saying, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice. So there you are. Say, imagine you're, you're one of the priests or you're one of the troops or you're even in the camp just watching this, this crazy strategy take place every day. And you watch them go out in quiet. Maybe the priests blow the trumpet to gather them together, things like that. But after that, they are in silence, walking around that city. Can you imagine being in the city watching this? Every day, here they come. <laughs> They're doing nothing but walking around the city. Let's throw them some bread, like back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, right? When, you, when we find Babylon was getting ready to be besieged by other nations. We find they would throw bread over after the time of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, during Cyrus. They would throw bread over to them. I can imagine taunts going on or who knows what from the city walls as these people just keep coming around the city every day, and yet they're doing it in total silence. What part of you would it take, what part of you would say, well, they're cussing me out and yelling at me, I should say something back. What, Something would scream out to you to retaliate or to, or to say something as you're walking around those walls. But they do it in total silence. Total obedience to Jehovah, to Yahweh Himself. 
And it says the ark went around the city, going around it once, and they came into the camp and stayed in the camp. And so I'm just sitting there imagining this whole thing happening. From the Israelite standpoint, that would take a total commitment to obey the one who sent you. From the sake of the inside the city, I can imagine the individuals in the city, the Amorites, just looking and wondering what in the world's going on, maybe even insulting them, except for Rahab, who's saying, these are my deliverers. Hopeful as the days go on. Verse 12, And Joshua rose up early in the morning. The priests took up the ark of Jehovah, and seven priests carrying seven ram's horns before the ark of Jehovah went on without stopping and blew with the ram's horns. There is some, some blowing going on with the ram's horns, probably to gather them in to different ranks. And the armed men went in front of them, but the rear guard came after the ark of Jehovah as the priests were going on and blowing with the ram's horns. So once per day this is happening. Silence except for the ram's horns being blown. Ready and waiting for Yahweh to do something. Waiting for the Lord to intervene. And we find in verse 15 the final instructions that are delivered to the ones who will deliver the city. It happened on the seventh day. They rose early at the dawning of the day. Almost seems like that's a habit of godly people. There's something about them getting up, either that if you're going to be a late nighter, staying up, whatever, and spending this time trusting God. Getting up way before dawn. Yes, you've got to get your stuff ready for battle. But there they are, I believe, also in prayer, asking God, okay, here's the day. We're like Naaman, who's going to dip seven times. Here we are, we're going to go around seven times. And Lord, you're going to have to do something, because these walls are bigger than we originally thought. Imagine walking around those walls every day and seeing them and thinking to yourself, okay, how are we going to get through this? Not just the outer wall, but an inner wall. And then we find some records, there could have been a third wall. This is going to take a miracle. Only on that day, they went around the city seven times, just as the Lord had commanded them, they obeyed. And it happened at the seventh time when the priests blew with the ram's horns, Joshua said, shout, <laughs> for Jehovah has given you the city. Now, if, if that wasn't the time to shout, there would be no other time because you've held it in. Just let it out. And they let it out and the, something amazing happens. You all know the story. The city shall be devoted to Jehovah. Everything in it only, Joshua says, Rahab the harlot shall live. Joshua himself remembers this woman. And he will send the two that went in and were saved by this woman to deliver this woman. But all the silver and the vessels of bronze, those are devoted to Jehovah, they shall come into the treasury of God. And the people shouted when the priests blew with the ram's horns, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, and the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city. That's true, because you had to go up into the city. They went up into the city, each man straight before him. And they took the city. The miracle has taken place. If you were there doing the march, now the reality has taken place. The promise has been fulfilled. The walls literally just go whoosh or fall outward as some people believe. They go in, completely destroy all the city, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep, even the donkeys with the edge of the sword. And so we find God makes a straight path for His deliverers. This is no surprise. He did it at the Jordan River. He did it at the Red Sea. Anything that stands before and gets in God's way, God will literally make a straight path for His people who are following and obeying Him. 
And this shouldn't come as a surprise because down in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we find this written. I invite you to take your Bibles and read it with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11 and onward. Sometimes God will rebuke us so we can be partakers of His holiness, it says in verse 10. Now verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Hebrews 12, verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. goes on to talk about pursuing peace. And so there are times where God tells us, this is the path you're going to have to take. Maybe, it's ch- maybe He rebukes us. Maybe he, there's some hard things we have to learn in the process, but He tells us, deep down, my goal is to make straight paths for your feet, but not only yours, but the ones around you who are weaker. So all the way down in the book of Hebrews, we find this explanation, and that is that the Lord makes straight paths for His people. Right into the city, and those straight paths lead to the deliverance of His people as well. We find back in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Now go to the harlot's house, bring the woman out from there, and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who were spies went in and brought Rahab out, and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and set them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. And so now these people become part of the holy people of God. Their possessions, which should have been burned up in that city, are now in a way devoted to the Lord's service because now they're part of the community of God and they're going to use those things for God's glory. That same spirit a devotion that we see that she delivered the spies. Now she will be one of the ones who will, through her family line, bring about the birth of the Deliverer. And so we find Rahab is delivered. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive. She lives in Israel to this day, it says in verse 25. And it says down in verse 27, Jehovah was with Joshua. His fame was in all the country. So after the fall of Jericho, it was not the end. But that message went before and echoed around to those around, and now they were gripped with fear. Now they were wondering, what will we be next? Think if we would stand up against the things in our culture and the things that are going on, people would take notice, especially with the changed lives. And this may not be popular sometimes. I got a message on my phone saying, why did you drop this, another word for feces, in my mailbox? Well, I'm sorry guys, but this is not that. This is something that's meant to invite people to know about Christ. We're going to use our building while we can. Some of you are going out and sharing Christ in other ways while you can. But we should not be ashamed of a message that brings deliverance to people's hearts. My African prayer partner, he knew, he's like, yep, the demons know that, that our meetings are such a threat that they will send one or two people in to the meetings 
to disrupt during the course of the meetings. And before the meetings, they'll try to send disruption. And if that doesn't work before or during, it'll be right after the meetings that they'll cause disruption in order to get people's minds off of this message. What is it about this message then that is so important? It's a message of deliverance. And as I look at this idea, look what happens to Jericho after this. We find it eventually gets rebuilt. And at Jericho, we find throughout the Old Testament, Jericho is mentioned different places. Take your concordance, look it up. You find that prophets come from Jericho at, at one point, especially you find in 2 Kings chapter 2. We find later on the men of Jericho were the ones who were help, helping rebuild Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. And later, years later, the footsteps of the one who delivered that city to Joshua, his graceful footsteps graced that city again. Look over in Matthew 20. As they departed from Jericho, a great crowd follows him, Jesus. And what does he do? What was his mission? He heals people. He preaches good news to the poor, yes. But he sets captives free. And we find in Jericho years later, that's exactly what happens in Mark chapter 10. They came to Jericho, and as he was with his disciples, a large crowd went out of Jericho. Here's blind Bartimaeus, right? The son of Timaeus was sitting by the side of the highway. There he is begging. There he is with, hey, I need some food, or you got some shelter for the night, or whatever. You want to throw it in there. He is begging. And what does he really need? Does he need the food? Does he need to be able to see? No, he actually needs Christ. Christ will provide the food, and Christ will provide the sight. And that's exactly what happens. Others are shoving him off, and he keeps calling out to the son of David. He recognizes that Jesus is beyond just a human being. It's almost like the story of Joshua echoes down through time and how here's the one who can truly deliver you. And just this story, some believe, happens just a short time before the cru crucifixion when the eternal deliverer who outlived Joshua and who was way before Joshua is in Jericho, right before his crucifixion. And I believe as Bartimaeus receives his sight, as Jesus leaves Jericho, and Jesus was there long before with the time of Joshua, he has more in mind than someone receiving their sight. He has more in mind than just walking away from that city. He has you and me in mind. And that's where we find him next, is at the cross. And at the cross, we find the culmination, really, of the character of Joshua, Moses, the prophets. You find throughout the Old Testament, it just builds up to this deliverer who decided before the world ever began, before we ever sinned, I'm going to come and die for them as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He obeys that calling. He comes as a human being. He enters literally the stronghold of Satan here in this world. This world, before we find Jesus taking it back, was really the stronghold of Satan. Now, there were godly people. We find Abraham and others. But it's basically Satan saying, I've taken it from Adam. It's mine now. He enters the stronghold. We find, yeah, right before his crucifixion, there he is in Jericho. Maybe he knew down through time we'd be preaching about Jericho, and here we would make a connection that there years ago there was somebody in Jericho who needed deliverance. Here in the ministry of Jesus, someone needs deliverance in Jericho. And then those stories echo and say, we all need deliverance from God, and that's provided at the cross. And at the cross we find scarlet keeps appearing. We find, yes, yeah, it's, it's on the robe, we find the scarlet rope, but it's also crimson flowing down from him. Blood and water flowing from his side. And it's almost like God could say, 
I flattened Jericho. I'm flattened the spiritual strongholds. There was an earthquake at his death. There was an earthquake at his resurrection. The, the tomb literally bursts forth. It can't hold him. And he doesn't stop there. We find people are resurrected and he literally delivers them from death. And then he tells his disciples, I'm with you always. Isn't Jesus really the story of Joshua? I mean, this, the whole story points to him. And so our deliverer has come. And we find what's interesting about the cross is that number seven back in Joshua, it just, you notice how it popped out over and over again, the seventh day, the seventh day. It wasn't necessarily, we don't know specific, specifically it was the Sabbath, but I'd like to imagine that it had something to do with a reminder to them. And the cross, there he is, dying on the sixth day, really going as a lamb to the slaughter in silence, comparably to what other criminals were saying. There he is, the priest, the scarlet, and the deliverer, going to the grave in silence, and yet he bursts forth after resting on the seventh day. There has got to be some kind of parallelism going on here. He demolishes the spiritual walls so that each week when we come together on Sabbath, each week as Friday night comes, we put aside all the cares, all the problems of this world, and we come together resting in His salvation, resting in His goodness, worshiping Him. Sabbath then becomes a sign of the cross of Calvary. Because we know He dies, rests on Sabbath, and raises on the first day. And so the Sabbath becomes that sign of completed salvation for us. Each week we can enter into it. But also, the Sabbath is a sign of deliverance. Cross is a sign of deliverance. The Sabbath is a sign of deliverance. Look to Exodus 31. It says that it was a sign of deliverance how they were delivered from Egypt. And these signs of the cross and of deliverance will accompany all who preach the gospel to the world. This is why your message is a threat to Satan. Because in Matthew 24, it says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world and then the end will come. And you get down to Revelation and that gospel is linked to worshiping the Creator. And so you find it's the good news that He has died for us. We rest in that every week. But it's also the good news that He can recreate you and deliver you from everything that this life throws at you. And so the Sabbath then becomes a sign of the cross, but it's also a sign of deliverance. And so I saw that seventh day mentioned back in Joshua and I thought, Yes, it didn't really link it to the Sabbath, but I'm linking the cross to the Sabbath. So we have a weekly reminder of Jesus' presence and deliverance with us. And that means each week as I come here, I'm reminding myself, Lord, You're with me now. You're going to be with me tomorrow when the week starts over. You're going to be with me every day until I come before You to worship You again together with my fellow believers. I do it every day, but with my fellow believers once a week at least. You'll be with me through this week and You can deliver me still. And the book of Joshua says Jehovah was with Joshua. With Joshua. That is how his fame spreads. It has nothing to do with Joshua himself, the one who needed to be encouraged four times. It has nothing to do with now that he's in the place of Moses. It has to do with God is with him. That is how his fame spreads. And we know that this deliverer, Jesus, he said, in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say to you that you are Peter, it's not the human being he's focusing on, and on this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. That's the feminines in that text. And so what is the statement? The church is important to him. Yes, the leaders are important as well. But they can come and go, but the church remains moving on. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the church. And so we find 
Jesus gives this promise and says, you as a church will face strongholds in your personal life and in society around you, but the gates of hell will not prevail against you. You will knock them down flat like the walls of Jericho. And in case we need to remind us that the presence is with us, he said in Matthew 28, some chapters later, behold, I am with you all the days to the end of the world. So this is all the days. Here we are, September 5. Who would have thought the world would have went on this long? He's here with us. He's here with us when we're here and when we leave. And He can deliver us. So we need to be agents of deliverance. Let no one think that He is at liberty to fold His hands and do nothing. We really should put, stick pin cushions or something in the pews so we sit there and we... Yeah, no. That anyone can be saved in indolence and inactivity is an utter impossibility if we find ourselves sitting back while the world is literally marching towards Hades and death. I believe we will be lost by sitting back. And the reason why is because, quite frankly, the crime bothers me. Quite frankly, the lack of morals bothers me. Quite frankly, the, thing, the things that I see all around me bother me, and sometimes they harden my heart. But what really I need then is to exercise my faith so my heart will not remain hardened as I sit there in inactivity. And so in that way, I could eventually be lost through inactivity if I don't reach out to my fellow man. That's what she's talking about. Think of what Christ accomplished during His earthly ministry. How earnest, how untiring, yeah, He was tired at times, were His efforts. He allowed nothing to turn Him aside from the work given to Him. Are we following in His footsteps? Are we following in His footsteps? He gave up all to carry out God's plan of mercy for the fallen race. That's me. In the fulfillment of the purpose of heaven, he became obedient unto death. There's that obedience. We find in Jericho's time, it was silence until the walls fall and then go in and conquer. But here, he's obedient to death, even the death of a cross. He had no communion with sin. He had known nothing of it. But he came to this world, took up his sinless soul, took upon his sinless soul the guilt of sinful man. That's a mouthful. He came to this world took upon his sinless soul the guilt of sinful man that sinners might stand justified before God. You can't write a better sentence than that. It doesn't repeat, but it has this alliterative value to it. Comes here. Take upon my guilt so that I could stand justified before God. He grappled with temptation, overcoming on our behalf. The Son of God, pure and unsullied, bore the penalty of transgression and received the stroke of death that brought deliverance to the race. And so the cross is a sign of deliverance. The Sabbath weekly reminds us of that. But we must be agents of deliverance as well. We can all be a part of it. You don't got to be seminary trained or be a pastor from Africa or somehow be the evangelist. You and I, all of us, can be agents of deliverance. And so there we were, knelt down beside that creek back in Barron Springs, Michigan, wondering, Lord, could you deliver this family? I mean, to have your daughters literally shoved up to the ceiling and dropped on their beds, choked and almost strangled in their rooms. I mean, that is a horrendous thing to have happen. And do nothing, can, you feel like you can do nothing about it. And so we went to the home. We had to go outside of town. We drove on out to one, on 139, headed out of town, eventually found this little this place found out that there was a witch across the road that they had crossed years ago that was actually praying against them. They, they, she had told them this. So we began to diagnose all the symptoms 
that were going on there as we met with them in their living room and prayed, had singing and prayer. And then we said, okay, are, are there anything, is there anything in your life that is coming between you and God? And they began to list, well, we, have a, we had a grudge against that lady over there. We found out she's a witch. She's praying against us. And then our children, they're into Harry Potter, and they just listed all these things off and just a whole list of things. And we went to each one of the rooms, prayed there, but also had them discard things that were somehow cherished sins to them. You'd be surprised what we collected. And this was a Christian home. And I remember still going into that room where the girl had been lifted up to the ceiling and almost there was an attic space there and almost felt like she was going to be dragged into the attic. And just sensing this presence of evil there. And I said, let's just pray over this room and pray over this room and anoint this. I'll take the prayer on this one. So we anointed, we took some oil. We don't usually do that. We're not superstitious, but we put some oil in different places so that the girl would know, we prayed over your room. You can trust that God's going to deliver you from this. And we anointed her because she'd been having a lot of health problems that were unexplainable as well. And we went from room to room. And I remember we got down from down the stairs after we prayed over that room, and the front door, and it was not a windy day, just flung right open and slammed against the door, against the door stopper. And I thought to myself, that's rather strange. Walked over, we shut the door, we prayed over that family again, we gathered them together, and at the end we said, you really need to be connected with God through your devotions every day as a family. You need to have family prayer, family worship time, individual times of devotion. Otherwise, this will come back. Well, we were there. That was uh, back in the fall. We went all the way through, and eventually I left campus, but I found out through my friends as they checked back on her, uh, the whole family, that they had started regular family devotions. They had started devotions as individuals in the home. And for those months that we knew them, there was no reoccurrence. And so we were praising God that He could deliver people through us. But we just had to take those steps of faith as well. And I remember as I went back to campus just recently, walking by this statue. And here I am years later, and I've seen encounter after encounter where the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, has delivered people. And I remember walking by this statue, and it's Jay and Andrews, and he literally sacrificed his family for the mission of the church. I'm not suggesting that. But he had this commitment to God to make this, help this message go forward this message of deliverance. And I remember as I was walking by there, I remembered that whole incident on the outskirts of Bering Springs. And I said, Lord, please continue to use me to deliver those around you. Deliver me. Be, help me be delivered so that I can deliver those around me. And so our battles and our part in deliverance, it's going to result in Yeshua's fame spreading around the world. Yes, we survey the land. Yes, we have 10 days of prayer. Yes, we've got a spiritual battle coming up. We have to keep moving forward and keep in mind the captives. Some of you today might be captive in some way. God can deliver you. Some of us who are claiming to be free from captivity, we may have some cherished sin. We need to set that aside so that we can all move forward together to that glorious, beautiful land of Canaan. And we'll eat in the heavenly Canaan with this commander face to face. I can think of no other reward that's worth that much. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for that song, how it reminds us that soon and very soon we will see our Father's face, and in Him we will rest. Lord, guide us to that end. If we have items that are holding us down or things we need, we need to be delivered from, may we be delivered today and each day until you come. 
And Lord, if uh, there are those who need deliverance on behalf of us, guide us to them, give us that holy boldness, but also give us that humbleness that Joshua and Yeshua, Jesus himself had. Help us to be like Jesus until that day when he comes, for we ask it in his name. Amen.